the British, the British dream. Below our expectations. We're about to be the whole country. We're about to be the country. Wonderful to be here. Dream podcast. Join us, powerful people, as we launch our despicable acts like these and the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this Get up in your face. is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. Hello, and welcome to the British Dream, a Labour conference special. My name is Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. And I want to start in the way that I know you'd all want me to start. Try to calm down. I don't have to play tennis with an oligarch. And behave like an... The Reds have been having it up in Liverpool at their annual party conference. At the bash, a bunch of members, journalists and hangers-on have been chilling out with Jeremy, John and co for a few days. Talking shop, making it up as they go along and planning their big takeover. I was there. I ate badly, slept badly, had my ear bitten off a few times and generally tried to figure out what was going on. We've been attempting these speeching episodes. We made up that word, speeching. So this week on The British Dream, we're going to basically talk about Jeremy Corbyn's big conference speech. Dance around it, rip it up, spit it out. You know the kind of thing. The general vibe of the conference was not that vibey. It was kind of difficult really to figure out what the main thrust of the thing was from a narrative point of view. It was a lot like last year, but just with less of everything. Less internal conflict, less euphoria on the left, less butthurt on the right. The left tried to cement their grasp over the party mechanics, but ended up a little bit frustrated by the trade unions. That rift is one to watch, but the prospect of a Labour government will surely keep them singing off the same hymn sheet for now. There was a bit of anti-Semitism stuff, but that didn't really blow up. Brexit was the main agenda item, I guess. It remains slightly opaque as to what Labour's position is, mainly because different front benches kept on contradicting each other. But Corbyn did say, as it stands, Labour will vote against the Chequers plan, or whatever is left of it, and oppose leaving the EU with no deal. Still, no one knows how Jeremy Corbyn would vote if there was another referendum. It depends, he said. But then, isn't a gnawing sense of uncertainty the whole thing about Brexit? If there was an overarching narrative, maybe it's as simple as this. Labour is preparing for government. So of course, the leader's speech is the real takeaway. The bit everyone writes about. Possibly the only bit that people who aren't politics nerds will actually hear. Ten years ago this month, the whole edifice of greed is good, deregulated financial capitalism, lauded for a generation as the only way to run a modern economy, came crashing down to earth with devastating consequences. But instead of making essential changes to a broken economic system, the political and corporate establishment strained every sinew to bail out and prop up the system that led to the crash in the first place. Jeremy walked out to a packed conference hall just after they played You'll Never Walk Alone, which came across as a sort of defensive or maybe defiant anthem. He tried to locate his speech in the context of the financial crash 10 years ago that has blighted our lives ever since, and he chastised timid politicians for tinkering rather than making systemic change. The high points of the speech were when he talked about the human effects of that crisis, but the austerity that came after it, and he pledged to fix those problems. A woman named Angela wrote to me recently, and she said... My mentally ill daughter was told she would have to wait 12 months to get an appointment with an appropriate therapist. As a mother, I'm at my wit's end to know how to help her anymore. I would hate her to become another suicide statistic. This has to stop, and under Labour it will. We will deliver real parity of esteem for mental health services to protect people like Angela's daughter.
moments like this saw the speech at its strongest. I feel like everyone knows someone who's been through that or knows somebody who's had a mental health problem turned into a catastrophe by how hard it is to get help unless you're already in deep trouble. It's worth mentioning that Theresa May talked about parity of care back in June. But when we've seen fewer mental health nurses and mental health beds on the NHS and more and more people who need help, you have to wonder if for May, parity of care means cutting the rest of the NHS so hard that it's in a comparable state of crisis. Corbyn, meanwhile, is yet to have his chance to lose our trust on this issue, as with every issue, I guess. Ditto when you gave another empathetic example. People like Richard, who says this. My wife was diagnosed with progressive multiple sclerosis 20 years ago. A few months ago, we were told she needed to reapply for personal independence payments. She had an assessment by somebody who was not medically trained. We've now been told that all her benefit will be stopped. And he adds, I have tried to be, I have tried to be her rock. But the stress and suffering I can see my wife going through is so very cruel, and I've had to put myself on antidepressants. These are human consequences of a Tory government that puts tax cuts for the wealthy ahead of care for the disabled people of our society. So, kind of convincing, speaking to the problems of society, this is why the Tories are basically freaking out. They spent ages saying Corbyn is an out-of-touch crank, and now he's giving out these relatable feels. That's why Tory MP Richard Halfron wrote on the Conservative Home website, The problem for Conservatives is that the Corbyn description of what is going on resonates with millions of people. Failing railways, increased homelessness on our streets, utility companies with shoddy service and undeserved salaries for some company bosses, even with poor performance, families struggling despite working every day. So it was an effective speech. Corbyn's setting out an agenda and it sounds very reasonable. But let's hold Corbyn and Labour to their own standards here. In his conference speech, John McDonnell said, The greater the mess we inherit, the more radical we have to be. The greater the need for change, the greater the opportunity we have to create that change. And we will. And to reiterate, Corbyn criticised politicians at the time of the financial crisis, saying, Instead of making essential changes to a broken economic system, the political and corporate establishment strained every sinew to bail out and prop up the system that led to the crash in the first place. Okay, well, we're in a total mess right now. We're living through a time of numerous intersecting social crises. There's the housing crisis, the crisis of British state racism, and the biggie, the environmental crisis that could see us all swallowed into the briny, balmy deep. So, did he pledge to make essential changes? Or is he straining to prop up the system that is causing these crises? On climate change, for instance, he offered a green jobs revolution and a reduction of greenhouse gases of 60% by 2030 and zero emissions by 2050. Now, on the one hand, this is welcome. It's good that someone is taking the possibility of us all drowning in the medium term somewhat seriously. But given the catastrophism that accompanied this summer's numerous environmental terrors, deadly fires in Greece and elsewhere, parts of the Arctic Circle turning a disconcerting red on heat maps, you'd think people would be open to more urgency on climate change than conventional politics might allow. That would probably involve a diagnosis of global warming as a product of a system that is already a social crisis for many rather than some terror looming over the horizon. But the fact that we are all, you know, going to die, maybe provides an opportunity to push the envelope a little bit more. Let me show you what I mean with housing. One in five homes in England are now unfit for human habitation. 120,000 children are living in temporary accommodation. So, as John Healy has pledged, we will put a levy on those with second homes 
Think of it as a solidarity fund. A solidarity fund for those with two homes to help those without any home at all. And Labour will embark on the biggest home-building programme in half a century. So he's taking the housing crisis, which we all know is a massive deal. And the thing is that building houses will not solve the housing crisis. Even if you do build new homes, they're likely to be unaffordable. So he goes slightly further, pledging a levy on second homes, calling it a solidarity fund. It's a kind of cheeky but modest hint towards the class-based nature of the crisis. It's not literally just a crisis of not having enough homes. It's a crisis of the financialization of property, of property being something that you put money in rather than people in. And so he's going slightly beyond the usual pledges to build housing, which we hear from politicians all the time. But again, there's a question of whether or not he really went far enough. For instance, in 2012, the coalition government criminalised squatting, making it illegal to take shelter in an unused home if it's someone's residential property. If this really is a crisis, how can you justify not repealing that vindictive piece of legislation? That would really speak to the nature of the crisis. Now, obviously, this would scare the absolute shit out of the Daily Mail, the Express, Telegraph, Times, basically everyone. So you can see why he wouldn't. But he already declared war in the press, so why not go for broke? But here... The free press has far too often meant the freedom to spread lies and half-truths and to smear the powerless, not take on the powerful. Almost the last words of his speech were, we don't want to live in a society where our fellow citizens sleep rough. OK, so pledge to get rid of anti-squatting legislation. Why haven't you done that? Let's take another one, racism. Its victims include the Windrush generation who helped rebuild Britain after the war and then were thrown under the bus by a government that reckoned there were votes to be had by pandering to prejudice. The hostile environment policies, shameful brainchild of the present Prime Minister, led to the scandal, and the scandal it is, of British citizens being deported, detained and left destitute. This is a nasty, cynical politics that demeans our whole country. So here he's talking a good game about Windrush. But Windrush was just the tip of the hostile environment iceberg. There are innumerable victims of this policy, falling foul of borders in various ways. To take, for example, the health tourism scare, Lee Danes, executive of Doctors of the World UK, has said, at our clinics, we see heavily pregnant women, cancer sufferers and people with ill children who are already too scared to see a doctor. Hospitals should be reducing barriers to these people, not putting up more. The Windrush scandal took down a minister. I feel like there's an opportunity here to totally undermine the premise of British state racism by saying that what's not OK to do to a British Jamaican person who may have been in the country for ages is also not OK for people who got here a bit more recently and maybe don't have the right papers. They are humans with human rights too. Corbyn says we can never become complacent about the scourge of racism. So, why would you only speak up for the British victims of the hostile environment? What is it about those other victims that means they're not worth a mention? I should say, Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott has pledged to end the indefinite detention of migrants, which is good. 
But in her conference speech, she said... This government is big on rhetoric about security, policing and borders, but talk is cheap. Action costs money. They slash the border guards just as they slash the police and fire services. Not Labour. It wasn't Labour that slashed the border guards. It was the Tories that made those cuts. Real border security to stop drug trafficking, sex traffickers, gangsters and terrorists, that is what the Labour Party stands for. Diane Abbott then says, false rhetoric on protecting our borders and immigration led directly to the Windrush scandal. That's the exact same false rhetoric that she has just indulged in. Talk about nasty, cynical politics. Look, I know, this is politics. Labour are working with the political space that they think they have. They don't want to give anyone a chance to scream about a coming red terror. The current leadership is much more progressive than anything we've seen in years, and possibly ever. But Jeremy Corbyn criticised the politicians at the time of the financial crash 10 years ago for failing to make essential changes to the system. Wouldn't it be a shame if we look back on this moment of social crisis with the same sense of missed opportunity? It's interesting to look at what others said about Corbyn's speech. Patrick Kidd, who writes the political sketch at the time, said, that speech, bang on an hour and the best I've seen Corbyn deliver, should give Tories the kick they have badly needed. Or Tim Montgomery, who used to write speeches for David Cameron, said, don't agree with it, but Corbyn has a comprehensive and maybe compelling vision for a post-crash future of Britain. You know things are getting weird when conservative commentators are complimenting Comrade Corbyn. Should make for an interesting Tory conference next week. Let us know what you thought of the episode today. I'm on Twitter, at SimonCharles13. And if you're into the British dream, do subscribe to the feed and chuck us a star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. The British dream was produced by Sam Bonham. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to chat through what happens at the Conservative conference. Whatever it is, it'll probably be dark. In the meantime, stay positive. Keep the dream alive.